The other day, Dave mentioned as uh, part of our ongoing exploration of the of right view, the three characteristics of existence, and he spoke about those and offered us some guided meditation in, in starting to uh, view our experience, our moment-to-moment experience through that frame. And he talked about impermanence and dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, not-self. And I think uh, many of us have a, at least a passing a familiarity with impermanence. <laughs> and certainly you've seen a lot of it sitting here in your direct experience. All the changing sense experiences, all the, the changeableness of your minds, moods, emotions, and the change external in the weather, and you know, the wind and the sounds. Anatta is a little bit more, uh, a little bit harder for many people to get a grasp on. So I thought I would offer some reflections. In the and the the title of this talk is investigating anatta. So it's as Dave mentioned, I think last night it's really important to. I mean, all we really can do actually is come at these uh, concepts that the Buddha offered us as ways to reframe our perspective, offering them from an awakened mind and with our not yet awakened minds to hear them and just consider them and investigate them through our practice, through our direct experience. And so that's going to be the kind of flavor of the talk, investigating anatta. Anatta, what does that what does that mean? It's a it's a negating of a word, atta. I think Dave might have mentioned this. The uh, so the a n is the negation of atta, atta being the Brahmanic concept of self or soul. That that is the under, the Brahmanic understanding of self that there <laughs> is some entity here that is fixed that is separate, that is self-determining, that is standalone, independent, eternal, the eternal soul, whatnot. That is what the Buddha negated in his anatta concept, which means not self. And sometimes, you know, some people think, oh, the Buddha's saying there's no self. He actually isn't saying that, as far as I can see from my readings and from the commentaries I've read. He's just saying that it's not the Brahmanic self that we see when we are, or that we have, or we, you know, that we experience as we're living. And he also said that when we attach to a fixed, uh, these ideas that we have a fixed self, a self-determining, a non, you know, a standalone, a permanent self that we are going to suffer, and we're going to suffer and, and experience stress because of the wrong view. You may, you may remember a few days ago I, I talked about how our stress and suffering arises from the rub between the, the incorrect, incomplete, or unhelpful views we're holding versus the truth, the reality, the design of things, reality. And so 
the Buddha was saying, actually, reality, from what I have observed in my direct experience, very closely watching my, my mind-body moment after moment with the, you know, the most precise and continuous awareness, is that it is not atta. It is actually changing. It is conditional. There's, it, it, what, 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 we, what our life is, is a bunch of changing, interconnected, interdependent processes of mind and body. And that are all, also interacting with the environment and environmental conditions. And that, you know, who and what we are at any given, how we're born is a product of conditions. The conditions that brought the sperm and the egg together and, you know, the whole genetic uh, and evolutionary conditioning and the, the, the changing conditions that we call life, condition processes, you know, the, the impermanence that life is. There would be no life without impermanence. There would be no growth of plants or people or animals or anything. So impermanence, change, being conditions influencing each other and turning into other things, an ongoing, never-ending flow. Not atta, the, the self-concept that was more about the uh, sort of the, the, um, the kind of self who could determine one's destiny. That was more of the idea of the time that he was negating. So it got around, as the Buddha was teaching this, what, what, what was a radically different uh, view at the time in India. It got around that he was teaching this anatta thing. And uh, it's a central premise of his philosophy, if you will. And so all of these... Brahmanic and Vedic priests came and started challenging him and, <laughs> and saying, well, asking him questions like, what do you mean there's no self? Is there a self? Is there no self? Is there a soul? What happens to the soul after we die? Where, where does it come from? All of these questions, right? So there would, he, and often uh, there are suttas that report these encounters and often, uh, sometimes the Buddha would actually just refuse to answer those questions. And once or twice, he, he, there are a couple suttas where he says, you know, if you're interested in be, being happy and discovering the end of suffering, that is the wrong question. What is a self? Am I a self? Who am I? What am I? Where do I go after I die? Wrong question. <laughs> and he says, I teach only one thing. Suffering and the end of suffering, and how I know the way to the end of suffering, and those questions are going to take you off course if if you want to learn what I teach. So he said. So he basically refused to answer definitively what a self is. You know, he said things more like this: There is a, the case where an un, uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person who is not well-versed or disciplined in the Dhamma, doesn't discern what ideas are fit for attention or what ideas are unfit for attention. A little bit of a sense of humor he had. This is how he, this run-of-the-mill uninstructed person, this is how he attends inappropriately. 
Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Or else he is inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where is... Where has this being come from? <laughs> Where is it bound? I, I read this and I go, oh my God, that is like my 20s right there. That's my 20s. What am I? How did I get here? Where am I going? What is... I was just bound up in those. 20s, that was yesterday. <laughs> okay. Yeah, maybe there's still, maybe you saw it yesterday. Yes, there's, there's still a lot of them. But I mean, it was really like the focus and theme of my 20s, I must say. I must say. As he attends inappropriately in this way, one of six kinds of view arises in him. The view, I have a self, arises in him as true and established, or the view, I have no self, or the view, it is precisely by means of self that I perceive self. Or the view, it is precisely by means of self that I perceive not self. Or the view, it is precisely by means of not self that I perceive self arises in him as true and established or else he has a view like this. This very self of mine, the knower, okay, wait. This very self of mine, the knower, that is sensitive here and there to the ripening of good and bad actions. The knower, Mm -hmm. the observer, We assign a self to that, right? This very self of mine is the self of mine that is constant, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and will endure as long as eternity. And so even though we are not Brahmanic or Vedic practitioners, even though we still... have, Have there been any moments in your life or in this retreat where you have identified with the observer... I am observing, I am feeling, I am hearing, I am tasting, I am discerning wholesome from unwholesome, the wisdom self, the one who knows. So he's saying even identifying with, the, uh, with these, these uh, helpful my, you know, uh, helpful pro- functions of mind, Um, and discernments. Uh, The problem being here that this next part, when we identify them as self and therefore assume that they are constant, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and will endure as long as eternity. There is that sense, isn't it? That, That our self this self who knows, this one who knows. It's like always there, even though, could you say that we're always discerning wholesome from unwholesome? Could you say that we're always knowing what's happening when it's happening? It's actually not always there. (laughs) Or at least we don't always, we aren't always aware of it. So it's not really inconstant. It comes and goes according to conditions. So the Buddha's argument is, how can it be self? But anyway, the sutta goes on to say, someone who thinks of their self in all those ways, who, who, who asks all those different questions about self, am I this, am I that, what happens to me after death, blah, blah. This is called a thicket of views. 
a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views. Bound by a fetter of views, the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person is not freed from birth, aging, and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. (coughs) He is not freed, I tell you, from suffering and stress. So we get caught up in those, um, you know, uh, sort of what-if questions, and we, we go off into the philosophical meanderings, and we assume things about ourselves like it's eternal and not constant. And uh, um, uh, not subject to change and will endure everlasting. And we are in this thicket of views that is taking us far away from freedom. So we all know what it's like to be in a thicket of views. We've probably been in a few thickets this retreat so far. I was in a thicket today, writing this talk. <laughs> because this idea, <laughs> I was totally in a thicket, trying to find my way out of the thicket in the wilderness of my mind. <laughs> I was like, what's the best way to talk about this? Because it really is an odd concept. It's like our, our thinking mind doesn't really get it. you know. But we get it when we stop thinking or when we shift our attention away from thinking and we just are present. We, when we close our eyes, when we are aware of all the different objects coming and going, we are very aware of the changingness, you know. And we might actually also start to be aware of our many and myriad selves that appear and disappear. So he said this to the you know, the people who came and challenged him, but they still, you know, a lot. It, it, the the folks who came and challenged the Buddha about his his anatta teachings um, are probably similar to us. You know how we might challenge the Buddha by saying, or any of our teachers by saying, "What do you mean I don't have a self?" See, that's not exactly what he's saying. He's not saying we don't have a self. He's just saying it's not eternal and separate and non-contingent. So, yeah. um, Let me see. So, I, you know, he, what he saw was quite a bit different. And it's something more like this. And this is from this lovely little Thich Nhat Hanh book called The Heart of Understanding, which uh, describes the, the Mahayana Heart Sutra, which is pointing right to this teaching of, they call it sunyata, emptiness. And I'll get to that in a second. So this is where Thich Nhat Hanh is describing the five khandas, the aggregates that Dave mentioned in his talk the other day. The five khandas, which may be translated into English as five heaps or five aggregates, are the five elements that comprise a human being. 
These five elements flow like a river in every one of us. In fact, these are really five rivers flowing together in us. The river of form, which means our body, the river of feelings, the river of perceptions, the river of mental formations, which is thoughts and emotions, and the river of consciousness, that knowing quality. They are always flowing in us. So according to the Buddha, when he looked deeply into the nature of these five rivers, he suddenly saw that all five are what is called empty, sunyata. And if we ask, empty of what? He has to answer. And this is what he said. They are empty of a separate self. That's the anatta teaching. Empty of a separate self. That means that none of of these five rivers can exist by itself alone. Each of the five rivers has to be made by the other four. They have to coexist. They have to, what Thich Nhat Hanh calls, interbe with the others. He has this term he coined in this book called interbeing, where all of these various conditions weave together and they inter-are, <laughs> they interweave, <laughs> and he calls it interbeing, interconnection. And so when the Buddha you know, observed himself, he saw nothing but these five aggregates interbeing and influencing and conditioning each other in this constantly changing process. And so he invited us to, um, and this is an interesting quote from Atanasaur Bhikkhu. He says, the Buddha is not interested in defining what you are or what yourself is. He's a lot more compassionate than that. <laughs> he wants you to see how you define your own sense of self. <clears throat> when you define yourself through ignorance, you suffer, and you often cause the people around you to suffer as well. As a first step in putting an end to this suffering, you have to bring awareness to the process by which you create your sense of self so that you can clearly see what you're doing and why it's causing that suffering. And then Tanjeff goes on to say this, which is linked to the Buddhist teaching of I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. He wants you to see how your act of self-definition fits within the Four Noble Truths and to see when it's skillful and when it's not. When it's skillful, you can use it. When it's not, you regard it as not-self so that you can stop clinging to it and can put it aside. So really, it's not about stopping the, the self um, uh, views creating these senses of self. There may be no way of stopping that, really. He's saying to look, to be aware of it, to be aware Mm. when it's happening and to see whether it's skillful or unskillful, Mm. leading to harm, suffering, or leading away from harm, suffering, right? And so we just want to become aware of how we create these senses of self in the various ways we do it. And there's so many, and I'm just going to touch on a few tonight. How about we look at the self as a separate thing, which is what our eyes tell us. Our eyes look around and see a bunch of objects, right? And there's space between the objects. 
And this really clearly leads to an assumption that we are separate, Mm -hmm. separated by space. And uh, there's also this part of the assumption, I I cannot tell you where it comes from, for each of us it might be different, but it's like, uh, you know, you're over there and I'm here, therefore we don't really, you know, I'm doing my thing and you're doing your thing. And it it helps us, this, this perspective of us being separate things uh, creates that sort of dualistic views where um, I can make myself the center of the universe. Remember, like I talked about the traffic uh, aha moment, the traffic insight. My insight was that I was thinking that my interests were the most important and that everything was being viewed through what I needed, what I wanted. And so when I relate to you as a separate being, that is conducive to that view arising. Me and the other. Me and the other. And as I spoke about the other night, all kinds of, as that uh, article I quoted said, human depravity can arise from that view well, when it's, there's greed, hatred, and delusion along with it, right? And so there's other ways that we could view like how we're relating to other people instead of this separate thing. It's not that our eyes are wrong, but let's say we close our eyes and then we start to sense other people in the room by their sounds. And, or maybe you're one of those lucky people who can sense folks energetically. You might be able to smell people or... You know, you sense they're there, but there isn't so much of a boundary there. And, and similarly, there isn't so much of a, of a boundary of body when we close our eyes. There's, it's a much more open, right, and spacious um, view of these various sense objects coming and going and changing. And there's much less boundary-making. When the eyes open, the boundary-making starts again. So it's really literally a perspective. And um, it can be a very helpful perspective. Let's just say that. I want to know where my body ends so that I don't run into things. (laughs) 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 No, I say, I mean, it's really helpful. And yet... It can, be, it can be limiting. It can be limiting. And then there's this also, uh, this sense like when we are interacting with people. I like to think of it as a one plus one equals three dynamic versus the view of I'm over here, you're over there, I want some things, you want some things, maybe we can compromise. <laughs> is, that, is that harmony? I don't know. I mean, maybe sometimes in, in the U.S. Congress... But here, with people, with our relationships, it's like, I mean, that would be great if they could even do that, right? But um, here, the one plus one equals three means that we are making something between us. We are making this changing, conditional dynamic that takes parts of both of us and weaves it together. And so it's possible to, like, kind of sense in to that dynamic, moment to moment, 
as we are interacting with people, and we can use our uh, mindful awareness practice to do that. The Buddha actually gave us instructions in the uh, the four foundations of mindfulness where he said that we should practice with each of the foundations externally and internally. The internal practice is is sensing into what's, you know, what we are are uh, feeling, you know, what's happening to us in each of our senses. But external practice, one of the ways that I interpret that is when we're interacting with others, when we're with others, observing how what I do affects you. What I do and say affects you. Observing, you know, the body language. The, you can really see clearly. I, this was, there was a big teaching for me one time when I... I, I was acting un, unconsciously with no awareness out of a habit I had to be sarcastic. That was, you know, it's the American way, right? <laughs> I just inherited it from condition A. I was sarcastic. I said something cutting to this person, and I happened to be fully mindful in that moment, and I saw their face and body crumple in. I saw it. It wasn't huge, but there was enough sensitivity to see it and to feel it and it hit my heart and I was aware internally of how it hit my heart and it's like that moment slowed down and boy did that teach me a lot about my effect on other people my words on other people and I I really endeavored to 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 not speak in that to to refrain from speaking in that way going forward not that I succeeded all the time but so there is this view that can be promoting more harmony between us rather than the separate self-view. And I find it very helpful to have a happier life. Wow, is that all spars I've gotten? Okay. (laughs) And so, you know, uh, here I'm going to... Read another little bit from Thich Nhat Hanh, I think. It's like the separate self, it's understanding, you know, when I, when I had that, that car insight where the bias of, the self-centered bias was destroyed, you know, and I was aware of the much bigger system of traffic and all the cars and everything, the the reality of me and my car was still there. That more limited, you know, sense of self or where my boundaries were. Luckily, because other I can't drive. I don't want to drive into the next car. That still needs to be maintained. And at the same time, there's a bigger view, of which that is just a subset, right? Which is this big system that I described the other night, of all the cars and all the people and all the, you know, urban planning and the roads and the people who make roads and the, you know, it's like goes on and on. You can expand out to the entire universe with that sort of thinking, um, with that perspective of systems and how we are sort of involved with all of this in some sense. Um, And that, that, shift of perspective and that breaking of the limited self-view, limited to me and my extension, our, you know, in L.A., our cars and extension of our skin, that's where I end <laughs> and everybody, everything else begins. When that gets broken it's, um, and expanded, um, 
it's a relief. It's like a, it's, there's a feeling of spaciousness. It can also be overwhelming. It can be somewhat overwhelming. But that insight also applies and applied from that sort of fairly low stakes kind of situation to other situations in my life that were higher stakes, that are higher stakes. And, and as an example, you know, as I've, I've gone through this practice and more, been more and more in touch with this big systems reality, instead of being locked into the just my, me, myself, my body here, I'm feeling, dropping into presence and feeling connected with the bigness, that very naturally has resulted in, in a way of thinking about my life. And, uh, for instance, thinking about what co- is coming into my life or my house and what is going out of my life. Because we have this tendency to think about our home as being like here. And, you know, we, we, go, we take care of our needs, we take care of our stuff, we go shopping, we load up the refrigerator, there's stuff to eat now. You know, it's very much about my needs, my immediate needs and whatnot. But like, how exactly are we satisfying those needs? We are, I'm in a house, when I turn on the light, where does my power come from? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite ones is when I flush the toilet, toilet, where does my poo go? <laughs> That's a good one for kids. Where does my poop go? I want, you know, it's like interesting to think about. All of a sudden, our uh, consciousness expands out into the system the, that, that we live in, the, the communities, the organizations, the civilizations that we live in. And, you know, this perspective is really sorely needed in our world because the lack of it is what has been allowing us to just, you know, um, willy-nilly use and abuse our natural resources and environment and pollute it on the out out end. We need to correct our view and shift into more of a Buddhist systems presence view where we understand that our lives depend on so many different factors and depend on the health of our natural world. We all depend on clean air and clean water and whatnot. And so if the way that we live, if we're not being conscious of what comes into and out of our homes and our lives and we're allowing ourselves to just pollute what we depend on to live, that's just stupid. Mm -hmm. And so you see how the limited view of just me and my needs and my fridge and why'd the power go out? Let's get the power back on, you know, because I need to get on Facebook. That's really limited and unhelpful if we want to, you know, sustain our, our lives here as people and not destroy too many other beings, you know, with the way we live. Another beautiful thing from Thich Nhat Hanh. If you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, the trees cannot grow, and without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. If the cloud is not here, the sheet of paper cannot be here either, so we can say that the cloud and the paper inter-are. If we look at this sheet of paper even more deeply, we can see the sunshine in it. If the sunshine is not there, the forest cannot grow. In fact, nothing can grow. Even we cannot grow without sunshine. And so we know that the sunshine is also in this sheet of paper. 
the paper and the sunshine inter are, and so on. And so you can take any object, including yourself, <laughs> and think of it that way. It's like opening up your view, just doing a, some practice reflections on, well, what does my life depend on? And I think I suggested this with, the, with food. Where does this food come from? And, uh, you know, it, it actually, in shifting to this bigger view, it brings us in contact with our heart because it is the wise, complete view. And so our heart is right there. And so gratitude will arise for all the conditions that had to come together to make this sheet of paper, to make Thich Nhat Hanh, to make him the wise and, and incredible um, teacher that he is, and for him to write this book, and for me to read this book, and for you to be here right now. Just an immense amount of gratitude mm. for all the conditions, our contingency, our, our contingency, each of us, we depend on so much to live. So that little passage that I just read is basically sunyata. What emptiness of self means, not self, anatta, emptiness of a discrete, non-contingent, non-changing, non-eternal self. It's sunyata, emptiness. And so I think of emptiness as actually full of everything. Emptiness is full of everything. So in any moment, we can contact that full of everything perspective. And it can help us sort of deal with the more limited self-views that might be causing us suffering. And, and I'll have a few more minutes to discuss a few of those. I'll move, I'll move away from the, uh, the, <laughs> the huge, you know, to the, what might be more, more applicable to our day-to-day practice here. So one of the aspects of anatta is that there is no object that is not made of other things. Like a chair is made of what? What's a chair made of? You look at a chair. Sorry? Plastic, metal, Yes. Cotton. Yes. What are its component pieces? Legs. Legs. Seat. Seat, back. It wouldn't be a chair without any of those things, right? And so we can deconstruct an object into its component parts. And we can actually, our, our practice, we can deconstruct experience into its component parts. Because each of these aggregates, not just form, objects, and you know, like that, but also all the mental aggregates of feeling, perception, uh, all of our thoughts and our um, our views and uh, and our consciousness itself can also be deconstructed. And so, let me see. Was it yesterday that we deconstructed emotions, and there was some more deconstruction in today's today's practice, guided afternoon practice, mm-hmm. where we look to see what is anger. And when we look with this wise view of anger as a mind-body process rather than a thing, rather than a, a, a thing that we tend to, when we're, when we're viewing like an emotion as a, as a standalone thing, 
that tends to feed into these assumptions like how we feel that, that this emotion is eternal. It's going to be here forever. It's everywhere. It's everything. And it defines me, at least in this moment, right? You guys feel that about emotion? You're, you're in a moment of emotion. It feels like it's just everything. And it'll never end. So when we practice with the emotion and allow it to deconstruct itself into its component parts as we practice, as we view, that actually helps us to break our um, um, identification with it. It helps us to take emotions less personally, which really brings a relationship more of ease and workability to the emotions. It's like, I'm just, I, okay, anger is here. We were t- I was talking to different people in interviews about the nature of these experiences. We have fear, and we can observe fear, where it is in the body, the, um, you know, the various you know, kinds of sensations, the unpleasantness of it. And we can notice the kinds of thoughts that it kicks off. Um, ang- you know, uh, uh, fear always seems to kick off the catastrophic, worst-case scenario type thoughts. That is the nature of fear. It's like looking at a giraffe in your mind, right? A giraffe has a big, long neck and some spots. Fear has these feelings in the body and some catastrophic thinking. It's not me. I am not my emotions. It's just this giraffe that's romping around in my mind, and it's quite unpleasant. (laughs) I usually use leopard, but today I use giraffe. Right? It's just this thing, this critter that has these qualities, and also it's changing. It's not staying the same. I mean, that's a little bit of a misnomer because, you know, a giraffe, well, a giraffe does change, of course, but but, uh, emotions change a lot more rapidly. So it's not going to be here for very long. So when we can view it through the lens of um, impermanence and constructedness and conditionality, like where does this emotion come from, you know, start to sink down into the uh, other, the layering of emotions and whatnot as we've been exploring. Like what are the little engines? One of the ways we've explored that, and I've heard people report very fruitfully, is that they're starting with, you know, things like, the obsessive thinking about Mm -hmm. some particular thing Mm -hmm. or a particular category of obsessive thinking, planning or whatever. And then when they pull back their attention from being caught up in that and they start to let mindfulness sink down and reveal the, the conditionality, what is causing that? What is the engine behind that obsessive thinking? which is, I I always gesture down here because I find that in my body there's emotions and I ask sort of my gut, like, what's driving this? And what might come up is, well, I'm feeling unsafe. I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling um, like I really need love. Many of you have heard that story of mine where I, when I decided to practice with the experience of craving alcohol, which was such a solid thing, and I d- identified myself so much with it, and I finally 
learned how to turn toward it and practice with it with openness and curiosity and compassion. It meant a lot of working with the fear and dread around it when a craving would arise. It's like I turned toward it with that openness, sink down and see what is really being wanted when I want, you know, booze was love. And so to be able to see that, it couldn't be more clear that uh, um, I cannot get that. I cannot get what I'm wanting or needing on the shelves of a liquor store. Mm. So that was the end. That was the unhooking of the cravings, to be able to see in uh, the, the stability of samadhi, you know, concentration, with complete openness and real curiosity. Okay, buddy, what's up here? And then there was enough concentration. I'd just come off a long retreat, so... But it's like, okay, well, that, it deconstructed itself and I saw what I really needed to see. And then ever since then, I've been trying to meet that need wholesomely. You know, with things that are better suited to what it's asking for. That would not have been possible if I continued to identify with the cravings and the using of alcohol and all that as me. Mm as a problem that I had that I needed to fix. That was, you know, that was me. I I identified with it. That was part of the hardening around it that was making it impossible for me to see at that level. And I had to see at that level in order to heal it, in order for it to self-heal, self-liberate. So you can see how important these these self-views, when we need to see them when they're there, when we're identifying with certain character traits or, or, or habits of mind, and when we're hardening these selves, oh, I'm an angry person. I'm a sad person. That depression, that familiar depression comes up and we're like, oh no, I'm, a, I'm, depre- I, I'm depressed. And I'm a depre-. you might say to, yourself, to someone, I'm a depressed person. <clears throat> it's like that really is undermining our ability to, that view when we believe in it, is undermining our ability to move, to have any, mo- you know, the movement and the clear seeing. What else? Ten minutes, ten minutes. Okay. So we identify with our separate selves. We identify very strongly with our bodies, <laughs> okay? I am this body. And um, I had one uh, student once ask me something like, well, yeah, I'm my body. I mean, who's, who else's body is it? <laughs> and the, the question that the Buddha would ask is, why does it have to be anybody's? Does it, why does it have to belong to anyone, you know? It's like there's this certain limited... Um, and practical view, which allows us to uh, recognize that you know I'm not Dave, and when and I'm I'm not going to go home with Dave in his suitcase and you know live his life with him or next to him or whatever. We go our separate ways. We come together. We you know we do uh, these retreats, and we're we're separate people in that sense. I have a different social security number than Dave and a different name than Dave. <laughs> I have a different house and, you know, interests and whatever. There are differences. There are unique. <laughs> We're all unique. 
And, and yet we want to ask, is that the end of the story? I mean, how closely am I identifying with that? Um, so we identify with our minds, with our, hist- with our bodies, with our histories, and especially with our minds. And I'm sort of running out of time, so I'm going to jump right to this, because it seems to be one of the ways that we really hold on. You know, we really identify a self. Um, and the Buddha has a really funny uh, sutta, uh, it's called um, the. It's called the uninstructed. It's yet another one of his yeah. suttas where he's point, saying the uninstructed worldling, the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person thinks like this. <laughs> it's it's actually called the uninstructed, and and he's complaining to um, to Ananda, you know, one of his senior monks. He, he's saying. You know, I could understand why somebody might identify themselves with the body, their self with the body, because at least it's changing slowly, somewhat slowly. I mean, from the outside, our aging process is is slow-ish. I mean, as you get older, it seems like it's going faster and faster. But you know what I mean? It's like at least the body seems to be around for a while as a thing. But to identify yourself with the mind. I mean, how dumb is that, Ananda? <laughs> it's like when if you just look for a, like two seconds, it has changed entirely. It's just like constantly shifting and changing, and moods and thoughts are coming and going. It's like a freeway in there. Not an L.A. freeway. <laughs> One that moves. And, and so it's like... You know what I mean? Like to identify with that to the Buddha seemed like the height of delusion. And so I've been really interested in my practice in looking to see what uh, processes and, and, and activities of mind am I identifying with as self. What to just, you know, we can do this as a practice. We can sort of just sense into, well, where is this sense of self? When do I feel it? When does it arise? What is it? Can I find it? Can I locate it? When does it appear? Because it, it really is just like this kind of assumption. Right? It's just this ongoing assumption of eternalism or somebody that there's a doer. So I started looking through uh, the, the voices in my head. Anybody hear any voices in your head this retreat? Different voices with different purposes? There's the doer. You got to do this, you got to do that. There's the interpreter. It means this, it means that. There's the director, which is kind of like the doer. You should do this. You should do that. There's the analyzer. Well, this means this, and that means that. And there's the Dharma voice, which is, you know, do this, Dharma voice, you know, and it means this, Dharma voice. There's the, I've been resonating with some people on this one, the critic. Mm. The critic voice. You No, that's not right. You, you're so dumb. No, 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 no. Come back, come back. Stupid, the critic voice. Mm-hmm. All these different voices, and when you start to be able to discern them and their different purposes, they, see, they start to have different tones of voice, like how they sound. They're like little characters mm-hmm. in my head or whatever, in my experience. It's like, oh, there's so-and-so, and there's so-and-so. I felt like I wanted, I'm a playwright, so I felt like I wanted to write a play that was just basically reporting. It was just reporting each of these voices, and it'd be different, the different char- characters as the voices. So there they all are. I, during retreat, it becomes really quite deafening sometimes, right? They just won't shut up. 
And so there they are, talking amongst themselves. <laughs> and awareness is watching, and possibly there is a sense that there's someone watching sometimes, but... There was this one moment I had in a retreat where it felt like I you know, was just being mindful of and aware of the different voices who were arguing with each other about something or comparing notes or something or other. And then this other voice came in that was sort of like free, not embodied, just, just stepped right in and said, who are you talking to? To the others. And I, 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 or the, there was awareness was listening, and there was this moment of like, oh, yeah, which one of those voices is me? And who do they think they're talking to in there? <laughs> <laughs> like, what is it? What's going on here? It's like doing nothing. You know what I mean? It, like, I suddenly saw it as a bunch of empty processes of mind. That's good that were just chattering, that were just chattering. And this other voice, which you could label, I I guess I'd label that one as wisdom, Mm -hmm. was like, who are you talking to? Mm -hmm. And it just all fell apart, and they suddenly all went quiet. And it doesn't mean that the voices stop talking. It just means that I I stopped investing them with any kind of selfhood. Mm -hmm. Like, that's me. That's me. Yeah, so the more helpful question when I was able to shift perspective from feeling like I was being tugged around by all of those commands and analyses and interpret... I mean, it's a really great step to be aware of them. But then there's another, almost like another step that needs to happen where we, uh, dis- where we are able to hear them and decide whether or not to believe in them decide whether or not to follow their instructions because there's like this deep inner assumption that, and we've touched on this many times, that everything that's happening in the mind, because it's me, is worth listening to and worth believing in. And it's like a command that must be followed. And this is where we come up with this this feeling of compulsion, being compelled by the mind and emotions towards certain things. I think that that's fairly entangled with this sense of self. Assuming that our self-image, um, our self, uh, our ego, you know, our continuation depends on uh, whatever these voices are commanding or 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 learning or whatever it's talking about, and it's it's just been good for me to to question that and to realize that any one process of mine is not me and doesn't define me. It's just a process of mind. It's just a voice. You know, that's part of a a habit, a a, a habituated thought stream, conditioned. Not me, not mine, not myself. As the Buddha often said in these suttas. 
Okay. And so I'll end with this, that there's also can be uh, an associated problem, like where we, we will harden our sense of self around a limited view of changing conditions. I think I already mentioned this. You know, I never get what I want. I'm always failing. I'm never good enough. Or the opposite. I'm the best. I'm better than everyone here. To be able to hear these assumptions when they arise or see them in our minds is really helpful to be able to question whether they're helping or or hindering us from really um, uh, being free and also being able to live through our, our deepest heart values. It might be these views and these the self that we harden around these views might uh, might limit that, our capacity. So I'm going to end with this uh, quote from David Loy. He's a Zen guy, so this is a Zen quote. Awakening does not involve gaining a new nature, just simply realizing what you have always been. Your true nature, your not-self nature, right here and now, is not different from the not-self nature of the cosmic process. The incessant self-organizing creativity that produces all things can never be perceived or comprehended in itself apart from its particular manifestations. And yet, in the most important sense, we can know it. We do know it because we are it. The same generative process that produces solar systems and countless plant and animal species is also taking form as this sentence that I am writing and as the thought that forms in your mind as you read it. To realize that the activity of your own mind is another expression of the cosmic creative process, is to find yourself truly at home in the universe. And so that view and being able to live resting in that view is exactly what my heart was seeking when it was seeking love. It was seeking that finding myself truly at home in the universe. And so the Buddha pointed to anatta as a way for us to see how we are limiting ourselves, limiting ourselves through our various self-identifications. So thank you so much for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment together. When you close your eyes and coming back to presence, maybe you can almost sense that. The incense, the incessant expression of the cosmic creative process through your senses, 
through your activities of mind. And resting there, being at home there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.